Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Chances are you probably know someone like this. A guy or a woman who, through having loads of talent or tons of luck or both, has become successful. They have everything anyone could ever hope to have. They've got money, notoriety, stuff, access to all kinds of pleasure and adventures and opportunity. Everybody you know wishes they could be that person. And then they screw it all up. Not by bad luck or illness or any other misfortune, necessarily. They just make some bad decisions or questionable moves that damage or destroy their careers and maybe even their lives. Sometimes this downfall happens in slow motion over a period of weeks or months or even years. But sometimes the crash comes in seconds. And in the end there's nobody to blame except the person themselves. This sort of thing happens a lot in music. Ego, bad advice, hubris, arrogance, drugs, stubbornness, being out of touch, mental illness. All these things can lead to tarnished legacies at the very least, and full-on catastrophes at worst. These are stories of spectacular acts of self-sabotage. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. All right, you spend your whole life crawling up from the muck to be a successful rock star. You sacrifice everything for your art. And then when you're at the top, you lose sight of the prize and start doing dumb things. And before you know it, you're in trouble. And if you're not careful, everything you've worked for disappears. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. And I want to be very upfront with you. Over the next hour, you're going to hear some very bad music. Okay, not all of it, but you'll know it when you hear it. The object of this torture is to show you how through mismanagement, negligence, colossal misjudgments, or just plain stupidity, an artist can do serious damage to their career and to their legacy. Maybe there are some object lessons in here. And if that's the case, perhaps we can all learn from some of these mistakes. I want to start with some artistic missteps. Artists, you understand, are not regular people, and I don't mean that in any pejorative way. They're motivated by a need to create art, and sometimes that need, those intimately held convictions about what they do and what they create, leads them astray. In the broader rock world, we saw this with Guns N' Roses and their inability to hold it together. Billy Squire and his career-killing Rock Me Tonight video, truly one of the worst music videos ever made. Rod Stewart was never considered much of a rocker after he released Do You Think I'm Sexy? 
Jerry Lee Lewis for marrying his 13-year-old cousin, and Michael Jackson. I don't think I need to elaborate there. But what about in the alt-rock world? That's what we're going to concern ourselves with today. Let's discuss Chris Cornell and his third solo album. It was, um, well, it was unexpected in tone and direction. Let's just leave it at that. After years and years as the singer of Soundgarden and Audio Slave, and after putting out a couple of rock records on his own, Chris decided for whatever reason that he wanted to be a hip-hop star. He got together with Timbaland, a producer famous for his work with Missy Elliott, Boys to Men, Janet Jackson, Jay-Z, Snoop Dogg, and Madonna. They wrote and recorded a whole album together in just six weeks. And instead of big guitars and heavy rock rhythms, Chris was convinced that drum machines and R&B grooves and samples was the way to go. It was as if Chris Cornell was trying to be Justin Timberlake, who, by the way, is another Timbaland client. The cover artwork featured Chris jumping up, apparently ready to smash a guitar. Like, you know, that wasn't any kind of metaphor. I remember being invited into the office of a record company executive, the guy in charge of promoting the new Chris Cornell record to radio. He put it on and with a strained expression on his face said, isn't this new? Isn't this fresh? Isn't it different? I think my words were, isn't this bad? He didn't like that. Sorry about that, but I'm trying to illustrate how artists with out-of-control ambitions can create a big-budget disaster. What Chris Cornell really needed was a record company executive to say, look, Chris, working with Timbaland to create an R&B pop album for you is, is it's a bad idea. It, it's wrong. It's, it's off-brand. Don't do it. You'll just, you'll just embarrass yourself. But there was no one to tell Chris no. And this was the result. And you have to wonder how the critical and commercial disaster of the Scream album eventually played into the It'll Never Happen in Our Lifetime Soundgarden reunion the following year. Just asking, you know? Let's move to the Smashing Pumpkins. There are those who believe that Billy Corgan willfully and systemically destroyed the band that had built up millions of fans around the world with those first three records. Not all Pumpkin fans, but certainly not an insignificant amount. Those first three albums, Gish, Siamese Dream, and Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, formed what became the defining Smashing Pumpkins sound. Big guitars, loud soft dynamics, great drumming, and Billy Corgan's whisper to a whine to his scream vocals. But after the summer of 1996, that, um, okay, I'll say it, formulaic Smashing Pumpkins sound began to break down. First, Jimmy Chamberlain was fired for exceeding the allowable number of drug indiscretions. Without him in the band, the bottom end sort of fell out, and any new songs that followed didn't groove or swing the same way. About three years later, bass player Darcy Retsky left, ostensibly to pursue an acting career, but she had drug issues too. And then a year after that, after a big lead-up to one final show in Chicago, the band broke up and stayed that way for six years before... Well, let's call it a pseudo-reunion that was essentially Billy Corgan and a rotating cast of people most fans never really got to know. I went to some of those shows, and call me crazy, but, you know, if you're gonna do a reunion tour, anyone who buys tickets will want to hear some of the hits. Right? The big songs. I mean, that's what made you a fan of the band. 
Uh, not Billy, though. Fans were made to wait through long sets of unfamiliar brand new material before they were treated to a song that they knew. Maybe. In between was a Billy Corgan solo album from which he distanced himself almost immediately, and a one-album band called Zwan, which reunited him with Jimmy Chamberlain. There's been other madness, too. An eight-hour interpretation of a project called Siddhartha, and a seemingly aborted attempt of constructing a piece-by-piece 44-song concept album entitled Tear Garden by Kaleidoscope. He only got to 23 songs. What else has Billy done? Well, we can't forget everythingfromheretothere.com, which is a website devoted to, quote, discussing openly and without fears concepts of mind-body-soul integration. Now, there were a few successful things. His involvement in a pro wrestling league, his tea shop that he opened in Chicago, that seems to be fine. And um, that's about it. But back to Billy's navel-gazing musical rat hole. On September 23rd, 2014, there came a super deluxe version of the Adore album. Six CDs, one DVD, for a total of 107 tracks. Billy. Really? The Smashing Pumpkins, fronted by Billy Corgan, and that's Ava Adore from the 1997 album Adore, a record that seems to be the dividing line between good pumpkins and everything that came later pumpkins for a startling number of fans. Does Billy Corgan fit the description of someone who sabotaged his own career? I'd say so, but uh, your results may vary. Nirvana really wanted to kill their career, or at least Kurt Cobain did, and that was long before he died. I'll explain that in a minute. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. This is a program dedicated to bands who have done their best to ruin their own careers, either deliberately or through sheer arrogance and self-indulgence. We've seen examples of both already. Nirvana falls in the former category. By the time they started recording the In Utero album in mid-February 1993, Kurt Cobain was a really unhappy guy. Yeah, there were issues with his stomach and his drug addiction, but he really wasn't happy with how things were turning out for Nirvana. Now, let's be clear about this. If you've read any of Kurt's journals or talked to anyone who knew him, you'll know that he dreamed of being a famous rock star. That's what he wanted pretty much his entire life. But when Nevermind blew up and he actually became a famous rock star and the face of a generation, he didn't like the baggage that came with it. It was one of those, with great powers comes great responsibility situations. (sighs) I'm sorry, but when you're in the public eye at this level, certain things are expected of you by everyone around you. You lose certain freedoms and privacies. You're under greater scrutiny, and you can lose control of who you are in the minds of the media and the masses. And your art, these very personal creations of yours, become property of the world. Kurt also didn't like the record company game very much. He thought that Nevermind was too slick and wasn't punk rock enough. So when it came time to record In Utero, he was determined to return some rawness and raggedness to Nirvana's sound. He even wrote an F.U. song for the record called Radio Friendly Unit Shifter. This is also why he insisted on getting Steve Albini to record the album. Now, Steve is known for ragged and raw. And when Nirvana's record label received early samples of the album, they were, uh, 
Uh, well, they were upset. They claimed that the songwriting was not up to par and that the overall mix of the album was unlistenable. This was not what they expected for the follow-up to the rather polished Nevermind. There were expectations that this record would sound more like that. Uh-uh. Kurt wanted rough and lo-fi, and he got it. Here's a quote. Of course they wanted another Nevermind, but I'd rather die than do that. This is exactly the kind of record I would buy as a fan that I would enjoy owning. For a while, there were doubts as to whether the album would ever be released. That's how concerned and scared the label was. The label's hands were tied, too, because Steve Albini had a deal with the band saying that once he completed the final mix, there would be no further changes or modifications to the record. He even refused to hand over the master tapes for a while, essentially holding them hostage. It took a call from bass player Chris Novoselic to convince him to stand down and hand over the tapes. Some of the tracks were tarted up, but even then, DGC Records wasn't really happy with what they had. Maybe that's why they deliberately took a low-key approach to marketing the record. If they didn't hype it as the big follow-up to Nevermind, then maybe it would catch fire on its own and everything would be okay. Nope. First week sales were just 180,000 copies. Very, very light for a band that had released one of the biggest rock albums ever just two years earlier. Then again, Walmart and Kmart, two department stores which were also important record retailers back then, refused to stock the album because it didn't conform with their family values. In the end, Kurt got the album he wanted, and according to plan, he managed to alienate everyone who was looking for another record like Nevermind. In Utero is still a pretty good record, but what might it have become had Kurt been a little more, you know, cooperative? I'm going to guess that you're familiar with the standard version of Heart-Shaped Box from In Utero, but what about the original, untouched Steve Albini version? Let's give that a listen, shall we? The original and rejected mix of Heart-Shaped Box. Could you tell the difference? Kurt Cobain could, and he hated what was eventually released officially. And it was all part of his plan to sabotage much of what he and Nirvana had achieved with Nevermind, ostensibly in an effort to be more punk rock. Metallica did a pretty good job of sabotaging their own career, and I'm not talking about the St. Anger album, although you could make an argument in that direction. No, no, Metallica's dumb move was taking on Napster the way they did back in 2000 and 2001. It all began when the band discovered a demo of I Disappear, a song that hadn't been released yet, had showed up on the Napster network. Looking a little deeper into the situation, Metallica discovered that their entire catalog was on Napster. Now, keep in mind that these are the earliest days of peer-to-peer file sharing, a time when music fans were going crazy downloading music illegally. After years of feeling ripped off by high CD prices, an arrogant industry, and rich rock stars, fans felt entitled to do a little looting. The music industry was caught completely flat-footed. Seeing that their business model of selling music was in real trouble, all the industry wanted to do was see Napster shut down. And Metallica, and let's be fair, wanted to see their intellectual property protected, as was their right. However, they probably could have been a little more subtle and tactful about it. They fired off a $10 million lawsuit at Napster, very, very public, 
And actually, that lawsuit had the potential to be much greater than $10 million. It was a minimum $10 million or $100,000 per infringed song, whichever was greater. Then, with great media fanfare, Lars Ulrich pulled up in front of the Napster offices in a limo with a 60,000-page printout of 335,435 Napster users who allegedly had poached Metallica songs. The media, which almost always took the side of music fans back then, wasn't very sympathetic to Lars and Metallica on how the story was covered. And from that press conference, things just escalated. Lars ended up testifying in Washington about the evils of piracy, file sharing, and copyright infringement. And from there, the debate about music became a debate about how we all exchange all sorts of information. Bottom line is, because of Metallica's ham-handed PR disaster, they ended up being the poster boys for rich, greedy rock stars everywhere. Anyone else remember this web cartoon? Like, good afternoon. My name is, you know, like, Lars Ulrich from Metallica. I've worked for years to get where I am today. Years and years of playing clubs and recording demo tapes. Me and my buddy, like, James Hetfield here, have shed blood, sweat, beer to get where we are today. Beer! Good! All you post-pubescent boys who have bought, like, our albums and our t-shirts and our concert videos and... and, and, and t-shirts! Good! Yeah, t-shirts! You loyal fans who, like, bang your heads at our concerts and pay, like, $200 for a ticket, $20 for, like, a CD, like, $50 for a Metallica t-shirt, and, like, $100 for a genuine Metallica f***ing ring. You're all f***ing awesome! And we'll never forget you! You made us rich! You made us popular. You got us under the cover of, you know, like, Kerrang! magazine. I worship you. You, the Metallica fan. Beer! Good! Unless you downloaded Until It Sleeps from Napster. Then you're going to motherfucking jail. You're motherfucking meat. You'll be some fat, greasy, tattooed bastard's buttery Who do you think you are? I mean, just, you know, because you, like, made us rich, you think you can get free stuff? Songs that we spent upwards of, you know, like, 24 to 48 hours writing and recording? I mean, James blew up for you. He ignited into a fiery inferno for you people. Fire bad! Fire bad! Our team of lawyers and researchers have your names, and we're going to hunt you down like the table scrap pilfering grab asses you are. So to conclude, rock on, Metallica fans. We'll see you on tour this summer. And you Napster users, we'll see you in jail getting gang Now, to be fair, Metallica does now understand that they probably could have handled the Napster battle a little bit better. But it'll be a while, if ever, before people forget how poorly it went for them, even if they were in the right. Few rock stars have done a better job of becoming incredibly successful and then destroying that success like Scott Weiland, time and time again. Weiland has been nothing but a giant, giant pain in the ass for almost every musical gig he's held. Yes, he's very good. Yes, he's super charismatic. So I guess you put up with him until you can't. Let's start with the Stone Temple Pilots. STP formed in San Diego in 1986. Wyland and bass player Robert DeLeo were the founders. Robert's brother Dean and drummer Eric Krentz were brought in later. Wyland sang and wrote most of the lyrics, and it was a good arrangement, musically anyway, and things worked rather well. But then it began to get weird in about 1993 when Wyland discovered heroin. 
The story is that during an STP tour with the Butthole Surfers, the surfers Gibby Haynes showed Scott how it was done. Whether that's true or not doesn't matter because after this tour, Wyland got deeply involved in Smack. We know that's true. This created all kinds of problems for the band. Starting in 1995, Wyland was in and out of rehab and in and out of jail. And then in 1998, he was nabbed on a possession charge and sentenced to a year in jail. Once he got out, he rejoined STP, but at the end of their 2002 tour, Wyland got into a fight with Dean DeLeo, and that was it. The band broke up. But Wyland managed to find more work, this time with Velvet Revolver. They roared out of the gate with a multi-platinum debut album, but Wyland continued to be a pain in the ass. In July 2004, he was charged with DUI and sentenced to three months probation and a six-month rehab program. But, somehow though, Velvet Revolver hung together long enough to release a second album. But then, in 2006, STP was offered a big pile of money to reunite, which they did. And Wyland said, hey, don't worry, I'll just divide my time between STP, Velvet Revolver, and whatever solo stuff I feel like doing. Yeah, that worked out well. A tour of Japan was cancelled because Velvet Revolver was denied visas. Guess who caught the attention of the authorities? A tour of Australia was called off, and then Wyland voluntarily went into rehab. But then, about a year later, this is November 2007, a supposedly sober Wyland was caught on another DUI charge and sentenced to 18 months in an alcohol rehab program, four years probation, and eight days in jail. He ended up serving about 10 hours before they turned him loose. Velvet Revolver tried to get back to business, but on the subsequent tour, and this is early 2008, Wyland backslid even more. When the road trip got to the UK, nobody in the band was speaking with him. And then during a gig in Glasgow on March 20th, 2008, Wyland announced to the crowd that this was the band's last tour, which came as a big surprise to the rest of the band. Didn't matter, though, because the band was planning to fire him anyway, which they did on April 1st, 2008. Wyland shot back saying that he was ousted by a bunch of egomaniacs. But he didn't care that much because, after all, he was still in Stone Temple Pilots, and they hung together until 2012. Barely, despite more drug issues and Wyland's tendency to be late for absolutely everything. It couldn't hold, of course, and things collapsed entirely on February 27, 2013. That's when Wyland was fired. The band issued a one-line statement. Here's the whole thing. Stone Temple Pilots have announced that they have officially terminated Scott Wyland. Wyland replied... You can't fire me. It's my band. I was the founder of the group. Lawyers were called in on both sides and, uh, well, it doesn't really matter, does it? Wyland's gone and Chester Bennington of Lincoln Park started filling in. Hey, you know what? It was amazing that STP landed as long as they did. The Stone Temple Pilots featuring the unbelievably self-destructive Scott Weiland. Three more acts of self-sabotage, or at least dubious decisions, still to come. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. This program is all about dumb decisions and behaviors that ended up looking a lot like self-sabotage. And one set of decisions and behaviors that is still being studied were committed by Sinead O'Connor. When her first album, The Lion and the Cobra, came out in 1987, she was declared to be some kind of sensation with a voice that carried a power and a beauty far beyond her 20 years. 
Not only that, but she was allowed to produce that album. No one gets that kind of chance with a major label at age 20. So lots of props, plenty of honors, and even a Grammy nomination. It was with the second album that everything began to go sideways. It wasn't the music. I do not want what I haven't got was very good. It was the way Sinead chose to behave in public. I have to be careful here because fans will say that she was just staying true to her social and political convictions, and that's probably very true. But it's the way she demonstrated those convictions that managed to get her alienated and eventually ostracized by a big part of the music business. Let me give you a few examples. When I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got was nominated for four Grammys, she very loudly boycotted the award ceremony, saying that the Grammys and the whole notion of award shows was nothing but a sham, an exploitation of artists. She demanded that her name be withdrawn from all considerations. And it was. On a tour of the U.S. in 1990, she let it be known that she would not perform anywhere that the American National Anthem was played before her shows. That's when Frank Sinatra famously offered to, and this is a quote, kick her ass. Then came the biggest career-limiting move. On October 3, 1992, she was the special musical guest on Saturday Night Live. One of her songs was an a cappella performance of a Bob Marley song called War. During rehearsals, she held up a photograph of a refugee child to emphasize the point about war, racism, and the abuse of human rights. But when the show went live, she held up a picture of Pope John Paul II, which she then proceeded to tear up as a way of protesting against child abuse within the Catholic Church, a situation that was still very new and very raw at the time. And the timing of the tearing was important because she held up the picture and tore it right when she was singing the word evil. And then she tossed the pieces towards the camera while saying, fight the real enemy. This, as you might guess, came as a surprise to everyone at home, in the audience, and especially in the control room at NBC. Let's have a listen to that performance. If you were the director that night, what would you have done? We know we will win. We have confidence in the victory of good over evil. Fight the real enemy. Sinead O'Connor pretty much sinking her career on live television, October 3rd, 1993. Since then, her career has been pretty rocky. She's continued to release some very interesting and very good music since then, but because of the Saturday Night Live incident, her continued outspokenness towards the Catholic Church, stories of a rocky personal life, at least one suicide attempt, and a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, she's never really come close to that career potential that many saw in her back in the day. Now, Courtney Love. Let me declare some personal interests here. Over the years, I've come to know the widow Cobain, and we still communicate on a regular basis. And here's what I've come to believe. She is very, very smart. We are talking genius intellect here, seriously. However, the woman does not have any filters, and to her credit, she knows this. She also knows that she has strong narcissistic issues. Add these things together, her intellect, her lack of filters and narcissism, and you have something pretty destructive. Now, there's no point in going through all the drug and alcohol problems or her family issues or her fights with Madonna and other celebrities and the battles within the Nirvana estate and dozens of other stories of bizarre public behavior because those are well documented elsewhere. Courtney knows, and I've talked to her about this, that she had a really good thing going with music and acting towards the end of the 90s. And she knows that she has no one to blame but herself for blowing that all up. 
She knows that her lack of filters have resulted in a series of lawsuits. Libel, slander, defamation, non-payment for services and goods rendered, broken contracts. And she acknowledges that she burned through at least $27 million of Nirvana money, some of which went to the settling of those lawsuits. Here's a quote from the Sunday Times of London. I know that's a lifetime of money to most people, but I'm a big girl. It's rock and roll. It's Nirvana money. I had to let it go. I make enough to live on. I'm financially solvent. I focus on what I make now. What do you do with a revolution? One final story about self-sabotage. Or maybe not. This last one all depends on what you think about U2 and the release of the Songs of Innocence album to 500 million unsuspecting iTunes subscribers on September 9th, 2014, as part of Apple's introduction of the iPhone 6. The idea of distributing an album to 500 million people simultaneously is a stunning technological feat. But I wish I had been in on the conversations that resulted in this plan. Someone must have said... Hey, is there any potential for backlash and negative PR if we do it this way? Who said that in the meetings? And what was the answer? Apple is very, very good at giving away free music. Just look at the front page of the iTunes store on any given day. Why didn't Apple just say, look, we're giving away the new U2 album to everybody. Go to iTunes, click on the link before October 13th, and it's yours. Instead, they chose to carpet bomb 500 million people with this album. Why? Could it be that everybody involved just wanted to say that they released 500 million copies of an album? And I can see why people are upset about finding something unwanted in their iTunes library. I mean, your music collection is a very personal thing, and to have it invaded by an outside party can feel like a violation of privacy and property. I'd probably feel the same way if I woke up and found a Jay-Z or Justin Bieber album on my phone. I mean, wouldn't you freak out? But then again, let's think about it this way. This was only a potential download. You actually had to go out and get it unless you had download all purchase songs immediately enabled on your phone. I had a chance to talk to the edge about this. There are some people who are saying that this is this is, you know, spam and junk mail. What how do you respond to that? Well, we're not naive enough to think that everyone is going to like our work. Um there are times when 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 I think that people who don't like you two are just not trying hard enough. But, you know, in the end when you've got 500, 600 million people getting your album, of course, it's, it's, you know, it's not everyone's going to want it or like it. And we're fine with that. We're, we're, we're cool with, with people, you know, if they want to throw it in their spam junk mail, that's up to them. But what's exciting to us is the number of people that are, are getting to hear our music maybe for the first time. And, you know, all of our albums over the over the last couple of weeks have re-entered the top 50 or 150 of, of the iTunes charts. And so far, 38 million people have listened to this album. So I think it's working. I think our songs are going to become more famous because of this way of distributing the album than if we'd gone for a conventional release. And I think that's our job, really, as artists, is to make our work known, understood, and appreciated by the greatest number of people possible. I woke up at the moment when the miracle occurred Heard a song that made some sense out of the world 
U2 and The Miracle of Joey Ramone from their Songs of Innocence album, which was simultaneously released to 500 million iTunes users on September 9th, 2014. Awesome technological and marketing coup or a PR disaster? Like I said, it all depends if you're a fan. Back in a moment. More of the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. No one ever makes zero mistakes in their career, regardless of what kind of work we're talking about. You're going to screw up from time to time. That's just a fact. But there will always be those cases of people who can't help but mess things up for themselves. And most of the time, we're powerless to help. We can only sit back and watch how the show unfolds. If you would like to suggest a topic idea for this program, I'd love to hear about it. Just send me an email to alan at alancross.ca, one L in Alan, please. And I promise that I'll get right back to you. Meanwhile, you can head to my website for more of this kind of stuff on a daily basis. It's a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. And while you're there, sign up for the daily newsletter, and you'll never be out of touch when it comes to cool music news and all kinds of other stuff, because I'm always on that site. Just ask my wife. ajournalofmusicalthings.com. Technical production is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play.